Okay, so as you're appearing on on sort of critical Mormon theme podcasts, as you're leaving the world of trying to publish in the Mormon stories world, as you're starting a blog for Rational Faiths, as you're developing sympathy for me and my excommunication, what's happening to your own faith and your own commitment to the church and and your testimony and uh, that sort of thing. You know, I appreciate you bringing this up because honestly, I've been trying to reflect and there are many things that I've missed that your questions are bringing to my mind. When, when Kate Kelly got excommunicated and Rock Waterman, and I think weren't those two kind of at the same time and yeah. you were on the chopping block, but then you got postponed for like a year. Yep. Something like that. And uh, I remember uh, Rock Waterman, Kate Kelly, and I'm just thinking, what they are telling me is that people like me are not wanted in the church. Hmm. That is the message I'm getting. How do I continue to go to a church that has made it very clear they don't want me there? And I wrestled with that. I was very upset. I was listening. I mean, I was uh, tuned in to whatever the, the feeds were on the day when, when those excommunications are happening. And I was very upset about that. Um, but, but I continued to go. There is a certain amount of momentum one develops after 40 years in going to church. And so I continued to go, but these things are bothering me. Um, there's a day, and when you got excommunicated, I felt it again, except maybe more in space, because I think I felt I related more to you. Yeah, we're both white, straight men, you know, middle-aged. Well, at least we're both white men. <laughs> and... oh tell us more you thought i was talking about me seriously though um uh, but you know just the way we approach things right in our journeys and so uh i'm sorry i was thinking about rock waterman there and what you were implying about him but he um yeah i just thought once again even harder this time the second time it comes to me a year later the church is saying they don't want me in the church Hmm. And that's why I wrote that. Well, that's not the only reason why, but that's one of the reasons why I came out with that, that pay on to you on my blog and just said, boom, how important you were to me and all these things and why it's wrong. I think, didn't I start off by saying how mad I was? Hmm. Isn't that how I started off that blog? Just saying, I am mad. Yeah. And here's why I'm mad. Yeah. Um, and I was. So that all that, um, yeah, so they're, they're telling me they don't want me. They're telling me they don't want me. Uh, there's that t- uh, day when you wear the, the pants to church, which for you know, me, day, it's yeah. every day, right? Yeah. yeah. But there was something about wearing purple on a certain day, yeah. like the ordained women yeah. crowd, you know, and I wore purple shirt, purple tie, you know. And that wasn't enough because I'm sitting there and I'm just making it very clear to everybody in high priest group that why it is I'm wearing purple, you know. I'm not just going to wear purple and everybody say, well, He's wearing purple. I'm going to let him know why it is I'm wearing purple because I made it come up mm-hmm. in the conversation. Um, well, eventually what I found out was that people really didn't want me at church. It, mm. it's, it's a split thing for Mormons too because they want me at church in that they want my butt in the pew. They want to see I'm there because that makes them feel okay. It makes them feel better. What they don't want to hear is me saying anything. They want to see me, but it's like my dad again, right? Uh, Radio Free Mormons are to be seen and not heard Hmm. if you have an alternate position in the church. And I went there for a number of months, maybe up to a year more, thinking, okay, I'm just going to take time, make a comment. I'm not teaching anymore. I was formally released in 2010, and steps were taken to make sure I didn't teach even as a substitute after that. Hmm. You got flagged. 
I got totally flagged, which I found out about later through a friend. But uh, yeah, and so they didn't want anything to do with me. And I just thought, you know, there have got to be other people in the ward who have similar feelings to me, but also feel completely lost and alone. And like, they're the only one who's doing this. And I felt like if I made a comment, it would be like sending up a flare over a dark ocean. And maybe somebody out there who's in their own rowboat might see it and go, oh, there's somebody there and maybe row over. Um, I found out that didn't really work out so well. <laughs> didn't seem anybody was looking for flares and all it did was make everybody else kind of upset, uncomfortable, and it was a bad situation. So eventually I just stopped. So about what year did you stop going to church? 2014. Okay. That's why I say the same year that my, uh, my magnum opus on Book of Mormon apologetics comes out in BYU studies is the same year I'm, I'm stopping going to church. Okay. So you've been out of the church for about five years mm -hmm. from now. Yeah. How did you go from, what happened to your testimony? Because it's not, you know, sometimes people stop going to church, but they still believe. Mm -hmm. Did, when you, by the time you stopped going to church, had you stopped believing the church was true? Or did you still believe the church was true? You just didn't want to go? No, I did not believe the church was true anymore. Do you remember? Okay, so you didn't tell us that moment where you just said, is it really, is it possible it's not true? And then you concluding that it wasn't. I mean, you talked about... Kate Kelly and my excommunication, mm -hmm. but you didn't talk about sort of if you had that moment where it's like, oh my gosh, what if it's not true? There is no moment. You never had that moment? No. Okay. And that's what I've been struggling with because you think it would stand out, right? Yeah. No, the closest thing I came to that moment, and I've got to do a podcast on this, and I've been having so much trouble articulating this, which is why I haven't done a podcast on it, so hopefully this will work. It's a number of years ago. So this is um, 2009. This has to do, so there's apologetics, there is um, uh, church scholarship, now there's church history, and I've been published in those things. There's also another, another part about me going back and just reading all this apocrypha, all the pseudepigrapha from the Old Testament, I didn't read it all, all the apocrypha from the New Testament, which I did read it all. This is a period of time, which is like 10 years ago. It's during this 2006, 2007 time period when you were having your issues, that, that life-changing issues about the church. And what's happening to me at the time is all of a sudden, I happen to stumble upon the incredible world of Bible scholarship and Bible criticism. And I'm thrust into it mainly through auditing a course by Bart Ehrman, who is, of course, a professor of New Testament over at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he's very much popularized these studies. I know you know who it is. Who it is. I'm saying it for any members of your audience who might not have heard his name. And so I'm just watching these videotapes of taped lectures, and I am just overwhelmed at the amount of knowledge that is out there. This is just basic knowledge. This is 101 knowledge about the New Testament, about early Christianity that I have never heard and it is dashing over me like huge waves, all this knowledge. I can't believe it. So I'm getting all of his lectures, all of his courses. I'm going out, I'm reading his books. I'm going out, and based upon that, I'm getting other things. I'm getting a, uh, uh, an NRSV Bible with footnotes. I'm getting an Oxford uh, Bible commentary, one volume, so I can study all this. This is back between 2006 and 2010. And this is what I am studying to prepare for gospel doctrine class. So I can actually come in there and teach people some stuff that they've never heard before. Yeah. I find it incredibly exciting, right? <laughs> the Bible isn't what we thought it was. <laughs> no, it's not. But you know, from a Mormon perspective, Mormons don't want to hear that. <laughs> they don't. But from Even a Mormon, in the Articles of Faith, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. From a Mormon perspective, most of this stuff, not all of it, most of this stuff is just fine. And yeah. even goes along with what Joseph Smith said, right? Yeah. But some of it doesn't. Mormonism is like the weirdest thing in the world. It has this completely open canon. It has this completely open idea of modern revelation. And yet it insists in being, for all intents and purposes, a King James-only Bible fundamentalist church, which is about the most fundamentalist conservative church you can get. It's King James Version only. That's the only Bible we're going to use, right? And Mormons have kind of occupied that sphere, at least for the last 40 years. Um, and I know that because I would bring in my NRS, uh, sorry, NRSV, New Revised Standard Version Bible, which has a nice red cover. It's a nice big book. I would bring it in to teach Sunday school out of, right? Uh-oh. There were people who didn't like that. Yeah. There were people who went to complain about that <laughs> to the bishop. Um, and uh, anyway, I mean, I honestly took to, I, I would bring my, uh, the manual, because people didn't, some people didn't like me not teaching from the manual. So I would take the manual and I would open the manual at the lesson and I would read the lesson first. That was the beginning of my preparation. I always read the lesson first and then um, I would do all my other research and I would write my notes in the margins and the blank spaces of the manual. So I'm holding up the manual and I'm teaching out of the manual, but what I'm teaching out of the manual is all of my notes that I put in the manual that have nothing to do with what's in the manual. So I don't know how many people that really fooled. Right. Okay. So you, I'm guessing what you're basically also saying is that at some point you started questioning the Bible uh, or our interpretations of the Bible, just like you started questioning. In other words, questioning Christianity, just like you're questioning Mormonism. Is that part of what you're saying or not? You know, I think it is. And what I was doing at this time, even as recently as 10 years ago, 10, 11, 12 years ago, is I am scouring through ancient extra biblical documents in order to provide, in order to find proof of Mormonism. I'm totally doing an Einar Erickson, even at that late, late stage. And I found some interesting things with relation to the book of Enoch, which I think are really very interesting. And a couple of other things, but honestly, I'm just I'm I'm like uh, one of these uh, settlers out there, uh, pan uh, handlers or pan panning for gold. I think that's the original panhandler. I don't know, but anyway, they're out there sifting and they're going through all this silt and all this silt and all this silt and all this silt, and they're just trying to find a couple of flecks of gold. That's what I'm doing as I'm reading through all of these documents. And part of me is kind of aware of it, but I'm so focused on what I'm doing. I'm sure if you're, you're panning for gold, you're not paying attention to the dirt, right? You're paying attention to the gold. And that's what I'm trying to pay attention to. And I'm finding some stuff, maybe some stuff here, maybe some stuff there. It's not really overwhelming. But I'm talking about it to some friends one day. This is another one of these turning points. There are a couple of attorney friends. It's a Friday afternoon, weeks over. We're up on the boardwalk by the river. And they're smoking cigars. And I've got my diet Coke. And we're just talking about, and I'm, I'm sharing this because one of these guys, his name is Glenn. He used to either be a Mormon or almost be a Mormon. And I'm sharing this with him. And, um, and he looks at me and he, he just, he says, you know, you know, I, I, I'm not laughing at you, but I just get this mental image of you pouring through this stack of manuscripts, this mountain of manuscripts, looking for Mormon words. Hmm. And I laughed because of the way he put it, looking for Mormon words. Because obviously I'm not looking for Mormon words, right? But that really hit me because that's exactly what I was doing. I was going through stacks and stacks of manuscripts and I was looking for whatever I could find that would support the Book of Mormon 
and Mormonism. And at the same time I'm doing that, I'm completely disregarding everything else that these people wrote that they thought was important enough to write down and got <laughs> preserved for the hundreds and thousands of years. And um, it's just very much this idea of what, uh, uh, is it called the, the, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy or something? Anyway, you're just focusing on, on the hits and completely ignoring the mountain of misses. And somehow that, that's impressive. And just Glenn saying that to me just kind of blew, blew it up right in my face in a way that I could comprehend it. So, um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. But that was also during this time when I'm also um, learning about the Bible, Bible uh, criticism. And yes, here's where I think it starts joining in is that I'm starting to see in the Bible exactly what I'm seeing in Mormonism. And I already knew about this before because people had said, scholars had said that Mormonism was a very fascinating study because it was like they could see Christianity developing in real time. Like they could go back to the first century and in a way view Christianity on the ground as it's developing and that Mormonism gave them an insight into doing that. And I thought that's great. That's really cool because that's very faith promoting. But now I'm starting to see, wait a second, there's a flip side to this too. <laughs> and that is, you can start seeing how Christianity is developing. And so you got President Nelson. That's just a, an example. Let's go, let's go back to um, uh, Elder Brother Doctrine, developing, okay? It develops over time. It becomes a doctrine in this church within a, a matter of decades. You've got different stories, miracle stories in this church, which I've gone over in the podcast, the transfiguration of Brigham Young, okay? That's not seen by anybody who's there on the ground at the time on August 8th, 1844, when he gives a speech. And all the accounts that are made at the time don't mention it. But like, uh, what, 10 years, whatever later, suddenly Orson Hyde uh, comes out and starts saying, yeah, yeah, I saw this. And then other people start remembering it. Yeah. And o Orson Hyde is the best one, right? Because he absolutely bears complete testimony that he saw not only uh, the face, but the very voice of Joseph Smith as Brigham Young is speaking there on August 8th of 1844. And that's Orson Hyde. The only problem is he wasn't even in Nauvoo at the time. He wouldn't arrive there for five days. He gets there like on the 13th. So there's this whole thing about, whoa, people can make stuff up. I mean, either he's making it up or he is making it up. Either he's doing it consciously or he's doing it unconsciously. And either way, what he says happened didn't happen. And he did not witness what he's bearing testimony of. And then you start looking at the Bible. And you start saying, well, none of these were written down until decades after Jesus would have been dead. They're not written down by any of the original 12 apostles. They're written in Greek, for crying out loud, something they didn't know. All the four Gospels that made it into the Bible are anonymous. They've got no titles with them. Those are given later by tradition, and they're assigned different authors. And you just start looking at all this stuff and saying, wow, did that really happen? Jesus fed the, the multitudes with a couple fish and some loaves of bread. Did that really happen? Is this Brigham Young being transfigured into Joseph Smith all over again? And all of a sudden now, you're looking at things completely differently. And so I think, and then Russell M. Nelson, right? Who in real time, you can actually see him taking mundane events non-miraculous events, and then adding miraculous elements to them until they are angels coming down to protect him. I don't know that reference. Yeah. Oh, that has to do with what I call, it's the miracle making of uh, Russell Nelson. The, I think I call it... Um, That's an episode on RadioFreeMormon.org. Radio <laughs> yes, please come over and listen. 
all are welcome. All welcome. This house has many hearts. Uh, yeah. The, the, the incident at Mozambique where he and the Wendy, his second wife, Wendy, isn't she something? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you one thing I learned legitimately from all the gay dancers is cattiness. Yeah. I don't think I've shaken that yet. Isn't she something? Uh, I remember one of them, I would, I would wear a tie. Actually, this was a gay guy that I worked with at a bank and I, I know he was gay. His name was Robin Chiswell and I would come to work and he was very into clothing, you know, and I, I guess he didn't like the way I, my tie matched or didn't match. And he would look at me and go, is the light out in your closet? <laughs> um, but yeah, Wendy, wow. She is, she is Russell's number one promoter mm -hmm. and his number one fan. Yeah. And of course, by doing that, she kind of promotes herself as well since they are linked. Right. But regardless of that, Russell and Nelson, he's, he's with Wendy. They're over in Mozambique. They're visiting the mission president. And then these guys come in and, and rob him. And... Um, what we do is we actually track that being reported and then retold, retold by Wendy a year later, I believe it is, or maybe less than a year later at a conference where all of a sudden now there's miraculous elements. And now it's in the book that Russell M. Nelson puts out. And now all of a sudden, I mean, there are angels present protecting them. And um, one of the, the assailants puts a gun to his head and pulls the trigger. Instead of going boom, it goes click. And he is just saved miraculously. Nothing about this in the earlier accounts, by the way. Nothing. That sounds familiar. <laughs> with my interview with Mike Brown yesterday, First Vision stuff, like, <laughs> it's interesting how accounts can change over time. Mm -hmm. And so that's just another instance of <laughs> seeing it Sounds very Mormon. <laughs> it's very Mormon. Because who wants to hear a story about being on your mission and hearing the voice of God directing you to this young Japanese man who doesn't come back for a second lesson? That's a nothing story. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the way it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as you, so let's say from 2000, how did you get 2014, 15 to stop from stop going to church? No longer believing the church is true. Um, no longer doing Mormon scholarship or apologetic kind of stuff. How did you get from there to beginning uh, radio free Mormon podcast? how did you hook up with, you know, I know you blogged, but how did you end up hooking up with Bill, mm. coming up with the idea for the podcast, coming up with the name for the podcast, mm -hmm. and then starting the podcast? Mm -hmm. Did you start in 2018? Is that right? Three years ago, so 16. 16. Okay, so yeah. So tell us how that happened. Okay, I will. By the way, there was another link here, and I don't mean to labor your, uh, belabor the point or try your audience's patience, but what happened in 2009 is that I got tired of looking at all this stuff and I got tired of reading the scriptures over and over and the Mormon stuff. And I turned my attention to literature. This was actually the death knell. As I look back at it, literature was the death knell Whoa. of my membership. What kind of church. literature? Um, classic world literature. So give us four titles, three titles. Uh, the complete works of William Shakespeare. Um, which I set my goal. That was 2009. I said, look, I've never read Shakespeare. I've read bits and pieces. I was in Hamlet in high school. And um, I know that there's some stuff in there that's really good. And I read the whole thing. It only took me, you know, over two years. 
to read the complete works of William Shakespeare because I'm trying to understand it and slow going and I am not the smartest guy, believe me. And it is a little bit difficult to penetrate. So, uh, and I got helps, you know, with notes and handbooks and anything I could to help me understand what he was talking about. And the most important thing for me was to know what the play was about before I read it. Because that was the only way I was going to know what the play was about is if I already knew what it was about. So I did that, got done with that, uh, fell in love absolutely with Shakespeare. And then I start turning around and looking at all these other books that I was supposed to read in high school and in college and that pretty much the entire world accepts as being classics of world literature that I had ignored uh, in favor of Spider-Man or whatever and uh, started reading them and making myself read them. And I got back to reading Moby Dick. I had tried that when I was in my 30s for crying out loud and went, Bleh. I got to the chapter on cetology and I just lost all interest. And so this time I went back, I skipped the chapter on cetology. It's like skipping second Nephi when you're reading the Book of Mormon. And I went through this and now I'm in my 50s and all of a sudden this is the most fantastic book I have ever read in my life. It is about the depths of the human experience. And after that, I mean, there are so many books, uh, Brothers Karamazov, uh, The Iliad, uh, The Odyssey, um, a lot of Greek tragedies. I tried to sprinkle those in as well. Um, so many things. But like I say, I won't mention them all. But I would read like 10, probably 15 to 20 books a year, which is a lot for me. And so I would read those. And this is going on for years and years and years. And all of a sudden, this realization comes to me as to how thin the spiritual spirituality and depth of Mormonism is. I think it was a Sterling McMurrin who said Mormon is Mormon doctrine is a mile wide and an inch deep. It is so thin. I had always been aware that when people say at the end of general conference, well, we have been spiritually fed that I'm starving, that that's a bunch of hooey and Maybe it's true for excuse me. Maybe it's true for somebody else, but it wasn't for me. And but there's a difference between recognizing that church is boring and you're not being spiritually fed there at all. In fact, you're being bored out of your mind. The atmosphere becomes oppressive to me. Like I have got to go. I've got to get out of here. It is an act of will to sit still uh, in the LDS church at that point. And that's been, you know, off and on since the 1990 for crying out loud. So it's been going on a long time, but it's one thing to do that. And it's another thing to all of a sudden be exposed to what it is that the Mormon church claims to be, which is this massive depth of literature and the human experience that totally resonated with me in so many ways. And it's like uh, swimming in like the shallow end of the pool. Your whole life, even while the lifeguards are telling you this is the deep end and they're hiding the deep end from you, right? And then all of a sudden you step off and now you're in the deep end and you're swimming around and it's wonderful. And now you've got something to compare that shallow into. Uh, it was amazing. And I actually had an incredible spiritual experience at this point. Um, I, I label it a spiritual experience because you know that there's this idea in Mormonism that hidden books will come forth in the last days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know this. <laughs> to bear testimony of yeah. the Book of Mormon and of Mormonism. In fact, it's, it's, in, it's in the Book of Mormon. 
and I think that was part of me going through all these ancient texts, right? Where's the Mormonism in there, you know, because these are hidden books, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, okay, let me just tell you the experience I had because it was very strange. I'm up in the barn on a loft, okay? And I'm trying, and there's boxes there and they're not well packed and they're not well shoved in. And basically it's on the second floor on the interior of the barn. There is a, a, a ledge here where these are. And there is a thin strip where I can walk and there's no banister. There's not, I mean, there's nothing here. There's just a thin strip and off this thin strip is a straight fall down 15 feet onto concrete, onto the foundation of the barn. And there's all these boxes here and I'm out there and I'm going side to side and I shouldn't be doing this for crying out loud. I'm a grown person. I should have more sense. And I'm trying to find something in these boxes and these boxes have been set up on these pieces of plywood that are set on top of a bunch of um, uh, beams, right? And the beams are cut off. They only go out so far. And I'm up there, I'm looking in, I'm looking in, I'm looking in. And all of a sudden there's this huge crack of the beam and the entire floor sags under me. Now, not a lot, thank goodness, because all I can think is here I am on this ledge with all of these heavy boxes ready to come sliding down toward me, carry me off the edge and down onto the concrete foundation 15 feet below and all the boxes on top of me. And for some reason, I've been thinking about these things in my head and about all this literature that I'm just enjoying the hell out of. And all of a sudden, there's this thought that crystallizes in my mind. It's not exactly a near-death experience. I managed to get out of there without it breaking or me falling. But all of a sudden, it occurred to me that the lost books of Scripture that Mormonism talks about are not buried in the desert. They're actually on the bookshelves of your local library. Mm, wow, that's good. These are the Scriptures. And then I started realizing that actually the Book of Mormon talks about it because the Book of Mormon says, you know, God has people in every country who are prophets who will reveal as much as people are willing to hear. Everywhere there are prophets. And I started saying, well, was Shakespeare a prophet then? I'm going, yeah, I think he was. Was Homer a prophet? Not Simpson. I'm going, yeah. <laughs> Homer was a prophet. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he was. I think I I think that there's all these prophets out there and they're receiving all of this revelation and they're writing it down and it's not buried and it's not going to come forth in the last days on plates in some ancient language which President Nelson is going to haul seer stone out of the vault again and translate. That's never going to happen. I can't believe how long I thought, "Oh, that's going to happen someday." Right. But they're there on the books of the library, and you can go down there and you can read them yourself. Yeah. That's the true wisdom, right? That's just the great literature of humanity is so deep and wise and profound, just like the works of Brene Brown now or the works of Eckhart Tolle. Or, you know, for me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I really like... Uh, um, the, the sex therapist... Uh, uh, anyway, there's so many great authors now, so much wisdom. You realize that you've been just kind of lulled asleep into, like like we talked about, Gruel or Pablum, when there really is so much wisdom out there to feed upon. There is so much. It was Esther Perel I was, I was thinking of. Mm, okay. but, but anyway, a lot of great, so much wisdom out there. There right? is, and yeah. it's not in the Mormon church. Yeah. 
It's not. These guys are fakers. There's no there there. Yeah. Can you imagine all the effort and all the money that gets spent twice a year, general conference, and they've got 10 hours. Is that right? 10 times, two times five. Yeah. 10 hours, all these talks, and they've got nothing to say. They have got nothing to say. There are a couple of exceptions, and unfortunately, well, yeah, those they, exceptions they, they, are negative. The things. gay people are evil. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. one thing they actually, and that and that you shouldn't leave the church, stay in the boat. That apostates are evil. Yes, and don't don't read dangerous materials. Right, like, don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> exactly, they do have things to say. Uh, RFM. <laughs> <laughs> They've got nothing new to say. How's what, what that? What they have to say is don't listen to RFM is what they have Do to not say. <laughs> listen to RFM. RFM will kill you. Absolutely. No, and can I just say something about Dallin Oaks? Yeah. Why does anybody think he's smart? How on earth was he ever a member of the Utah Supreme Court? Well, come on. He went to University of Chicago Law School. He's not a dummy. He's an idiot wrapped in a moron. <laughs> No, he really, he is. I am so unimpressed by his ability to reason. And this is something that Bill Real tells me, and this is a wonderful thing. Bill, you're great. I appreciate you. I'm going to mention you a little bit more here in a second because he was my intro into doing Radio Free Morning, which was actually the question you asked at the outset. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, how on earth? Here, uh, he may be smart, okay? Maybe, maybe Dallin Oaks is not as dumb as he presents, Okay, but the other part of it is, is that he feels that he has to defend an unreasonable position. Okay, so that leads him to make stupid arguments and bad reasoning and reasoning that if he's smart enough to have gone to the University of Chicago Law School, he knows that they're bad arguments when he makes them. He's like I was back in the 1980s, right? Doing the apologetic arguments, but there's something in me that even knows, even as I'm making them, uh, these really don't hold water. You know, these aren't the best arguments. This isn't really the best position to defend, but maybe he feels like he has to, he has to pick up the mantle after Boyd K. Packer passed away. Uh, but man, he is not smart. But the thing is, he's not, he's not, I don't even think he would claim that he's attempting to, you know, be evidence-based or even reason-based. He's, he's trying to defend the church's, He's trying to defend uh, the the vitality of the church. Mm -hmm. He's trying to protect the perception that these men are are men of God who receive revelation. So when he defends something like the LGBT stuff, Mm -hmm. he's defending Spencer W. Kimball. He's defending the prophetic mantle. He's not trying to argue from a place of logic. He's, well, he's uh, succeeding with that very well. Well, yeah. Yeah, not saying, arguing I, from a place of no, logic. But one thing I don't love is when post-Mormons judge church leaders by a standard they're not trying to live themselves. They're not trying to be science-based, evidence-based, logic-based. They're, they have one goal, which is to protect the vitality of the church, which means protecting the perception that the brethren don't bend to the will of... of people like you, you know, that they don't care about what Kate Kelly does or what I do or what podcasts say, they get their direction from God. And so that's what, that's, what's guiding down H Oaks. And you probably get that on some level. He's not playing your game. He's, he's playing a different game. Uh, right. And just so it's so we clear. can insult him, but he's not playing our game. Well, no. And it's and, like saying, it's like saying he sucks at basketball, but he's really bowling, right? Like, He's not trying to play basketball, so why would we want to judge him by that? No, I see him as someone who says who says he's playing basketball, but is really bowling. 
That's how I see him. And let me explain what I mean. Uh, maybe it's a little bit uh, personal because I'm a lawyer. He's a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, anyway. Uh, so you may be right, but let me tell you why it is. That well, I think, Aaron Gluth Spencer yes. says I'm right. You're right? That's what Aaron Gluth Spencer well, said. Well, damn it, I'm, you're right, John. Okay, if I'm, Aaron Gluth Spencer it right says here. it. Aaron, I'm reading it right here. If Aaron Gluth Spencer. She says, John, comma, exactly right. And when the Gluths, do you know the Gluth sisters? When the no. Gluth sisters speak, it's pretty authoritative. Well, absolutely. <laughs> so let me explain to you what it is I was going to say after I was saying uh, uh, how, uh, how unsmart I think he is. And the reason, <laughs> part of that's a response to how smart Mormons tend to think he is because he is the lawyer, of right? Course, yeah, he is the consigliere there in the first presidency, right? right? He's the guy they go to. He's the guy who whispers in President Nelson's <laughs> ears the correct answers to give at the news conference, remember? Uh, that was Jonathan Streeter who did a great deal, a great video on that. Um, Shout out to Jonathan. Love to Jonathan Streeter. Yes. And do we still have that? Is that the little Tyrannosaurus Rex it in the is, background here? It is. Yeah, because I look at that and it reminds me, it's like evil apostate is just ready to attack me right here. <laughs> Jonathan Streeter's evil apostate is a little dragon puppet. Love it. That's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. So just, just briefly about Dallin Oakson. His big thing now is to talk about the first commandment and the second commandment. The first commandment, love God. Second commandment, love your neighbor. And now his big thing is, well, we want to love our neighbor, but when there's a conflict between the first commandment and the second commandment, you have to go with the first commandment. And you have to follow God and follow God's commandments, even if it violates or impinges upon the second commandment of loving your neighbor. He gave a whole talk about that in general conference. And from the first time he says first commandment, second commandment, I know where he's going. I'm even announcing it to the whole room where he's going with that. The problem is, is that Dallin Oaks does not understand the New Testament, and he does not understand the Jesus of the New Testament, at least the way I understand it is all I can say, okay? Because Jesus of the New Testament taught exactly the opposite of what it is that Elder Oaks is saying. He's saying there's a first commandment and the second commandment, and if there's a conflict between the two, you have to go with the second commandment. And in fact, the only way you keep the first commandment of loving God is by loving your neighbor. That's how you keep the first commandment. And the Book of Mormon, which had this scripture in it that we used to quote all the time, I think it's Mosiah 2.19. You know what it is, King Benjamin's sermon. Can you quote that? No. Okay. has something about, for when you are in the service of your fellow you being. You are in the service of your God. You are only in the yeah. service of your God. It's in the Book of Mormon for crying out loud. And yet he's doing this entire justification, which is completely unchristian. It's anti-Christian. I'm not calling him an antichrist, but it is anti-Christian yeah. to say, okay, we got the first commandment to obey God, which means obey Mormonism and our commandments and what we tell you to do, which includes, you know, the whole gay thing. It's always where he's going. He can't resist it. And then you got the second commandment, which is love the gays. But when those things come into conflict, well, you got to go with the first commandment. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus says. Yeah. And so that's why I have trouble with him. And he's up there. I mean, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He presents as an apostle of Jesus Christ, teaching something that's 180 degrees different to what the Jesus of the New Testament taught. Yeah. So that's why I have a little Yeah, and, and of course, I'm not an Oaks fan in terms of his rhetoric. And of course, people literally kill themselves every time he speaks at General Conference, or at least that's often happened. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to sound like I'm defending him, but... But, uh, you know, the only point I'll just make is 
his allegiance is to the authority of Mormon leadership. Right. Because in his mind, if Mormon leadership, if the mm. credibility and the viability of Mormon leadership gets eroded, there goes Mormonism. And in that sense, uh, you're, I'm sure you're spot on about your observations about real Christianity. But in Mormonism, Christ is, is subservient, is mm -hmm. secondary to the the sacredness, the sanctity of Mormon prophetic authority. So Jesus. they'll throw Christ's teachings under the bus if it isn't, I mean, just the, leave the 99 and go after the one. Like, they've made a mockery of that. They, mm -hmm. they excommunicate the one and coddle the 99 because you know they want to maximize butts and seats and tithing revenue and and not not to be so uh, callous about that. They want the church to be vital. That's and they believe the church does good. Mm -hmm. So anyway, but yeah. Did you see what I did there? Oaks I got a, you defending Oaks. Oaks. Is a sphincter. What? I got you defending yeah, Oaks. Good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not really defending him. I'm just saying <laughs> let's be let's not judge him by a standard he's not judging himself. I think if he I think he's judging himself by the standard of how do we minimize the the drain? How do we how do we keep as many people uh, paying tithing and attending church as possible for the longest amount of time? How do we do that? Mm -hmm. And I think by that standard, obviously the church is hemorrhaging, but I think anyone who's paying attention would agree that Mormonism is hemorrhaging at a slower rate than Catholicism and many other Protestant mm -hmm. religions. So I think he would say, "Yeah, we're not we're not keeping everybody, but we're our hemorrhaging is slower than most most other Christian religions." Therefore, he would probably do a self assessment and say, "I'm doing great. I'm rocking the boat." And it's not necessarily that he hates gay people; it's that showing support of gay people undermines prophetic authority, which is his true religion. I am sure that in Elder Oak's mind, he loves gay people as much as Jesus does. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or more. Yeah. The human mind has an infinite <laughs> has, <laughs> That's very funny. The human mind has an infinite capacity to rationalize. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I I'm sure that I rationalize some things even though I'm aware that I rationalize and I try not to rationalize. And that's also part of what uh, has led me to where I am in Mormonism. Uh, writing the blog for a couple of years, doing the podcast has helped me really take a lot of thoughts and uh, crystallize them and even add new insights as I'm crystallizing them. One of them had to do with a piece I wrote on Rational Face, which was when I think it was it when Rock Waterman was ex maybe it was when Denver Snuffer got excommunicated. Anyway, what I did was, I think it was called Apostasy Now, which was an obvious reference to a movie from the 70s. And Apocalypse Now? Yeah. Yeah. I had pictures from Apocalypse Now and it with helicopters against the orange sunset. It was great. So, but what I did was, it occurred to me what you just said Jesus is secondary in this church. The leadership is what is most important. And a Mormon's allegiance to leadership is more important than a Mormon's allegiance to Jesus or what a Mormon believes and thinks about leadership is more important what they think and believe about Jesus. Now that sounds incredible. And it sounds like something that most Mormons, if you presented it with them, them with it that way would immediately reject. And yet I took your excommunication and I compared it with rock Waterman's excommunication. And I said, okay, so both of these people get excommunicated from the Mormon church 
Here is John DeLynn. Now, let's see. He denies or doesn't believe in the divinity of Jesus, and he also rejects the prophetic mantle of the leadership of the church. He gets exed. Okay, let's compare him to Rock Waterman. Rock Waterman strenuously believes and testifies to the divinity of Jesus, but he doesn't believe in the prophetic mantle of the leadership of the church, and he gets excommunicated. What's the common denominator? The common denominator is that it doesn't make any difference what you believe about Jesus or how much you believe he's the Savior. It is what you believe about the leadership of the church that determines whether you're going to remain a member or whether you're going to get excommunicated. And I think, and I saw that and I wrote it and it crystallized for me and I said, boom, there it is. It couldn't be plainer than that. Yeah. Your thoughts, John? Yeah. No, I'm with you. I'm with you all the way. Um, and uh, it's, it's hard because the church, they do claim to be, we do want to hold them up to the standard of being special witnesses of Christ and special disciples of Christ. And, and, and you know, unfortunately, and I, you know, I've, I've thought about this too. Just, I, I've led really small organizations and, and just with the Open Stories Foundation, it, it's really hard to lead an organization to keep it viable and to always be nice to everybody. It's just hard to mm -hmm. keep an organization thriving and vital. You sometimes have to make tough decisions. You sometimes, and I'm just dealing with an organization of one or two or three at the most. Mm -hmm. I'm not dealing with an organization of 16 million. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, there's, it's, it, religion's an easy target because, um, because it never lives up to the, the court, you know, Christology, right? It never, no Christian church ever lives up to the ideal that Christ set. And so religion's always going to be an easy target for not being truly Christ-like. But I remember Jay Bonner Ritchie, one of the first Sunstone presentations I ever listened to. Do you know who I'm talking about? Jay no. Bonner Ritchie? He did a talk called, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've forgotten it, but it has to do with, with corporations. And his basic argument is all organizations are evil uh, because they're always going to look after the interests of the organization yeah. after the interests, uh, but before the interests of the individual. Mm -hmm. Because obviously if the organization, what good is the organization if it dies, if you're trying to live up to some ideal or help the one if the organization dies? So just churches and organizations are always going to to fail you so they'll always be cheap and easy targets and as i'm thinking about things now i'm thinking and it's not that i'm defending oaks i again i think i think he's done so much harm it's almost indescribable it's hard to imagine one human doing as much harm in our context as he has and yet i understand that it's just freaking hard to run a church like that and run an organization to keep it strong in a world where everything's going at it, uh, in a world where the churches feel attacked from all angles. And I, I really, for a long time, I've had sympathy for the brethren because, um, because at the end of the day, uh, when, I, when, when my brother worked for church headquarters and he was friends with all the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve, and he invited me to have lunch with Elder Holland twice, uh, I just, for weeks, I thought, Oh, what would I ask Elder Holland? Or, and and the real and the standard that I had for myself is I'm not going to ask him about polyandry. I'm not going to embarrass my brother. I'm not going to put him on the spot and make him because I know he doesn't have good answers. 
So I thought, whatever question I ask him has to be bound by the following question. What do I, th what, what, what do I think would actually help the church become stronger? If I had a suggestion to make for Elder Holland, what's a suggestion that I could make that I, from my own values, from my own level of being formed about the church, what's a suggestion I could make to Elder Holland that I truly believed would make the church stronger? And I thought through that, and I thought, okay, be more transparent in its history. That's what I'd want as a value, because the church is misleading people. And a lot of your episodes are dedicated to this. They're dedicated to this idea that the church is misleading people. But then I thought to myself, well, that fails the test. If the church is more transparent in its history, if Joseph Fielding Smith doesn't cut out that page in Joseph Smith's notebook, the one you have a great episode about, if, if the, the church history department with Leonard Arrington doesn't get shut down, if Boyd K. Packer doesn't say the, great, the three, great, three great threats of the church are gays, feminists, and intellectuals, if they don't do that stuff, the church becomes weaker. <laughs> it decelerates faster than it has. If the church doesn't stay true about you know, keeping women inferior and persecuting gays and, and persecuting intellectuals, if it doesn't do that, the church gets weaker. So, so that's what's hard about this whole thing is if the church is accommodating to gays, if the church accepts women, if the church is more open and transparent about its history and doesn't recontextualize it into oblivion with the church essays that are disingenuous, if it doesn't do all that, it accelerates its own demise. So when I'm in my higher mind of thinking, I, I, I have compassion for these men because I literally, if they hired me at a million bucks a year to consult them on how to make the church stronger, I don't know what I would say. Do you? Yeah, I do. <laughs> How would they make the church stronger, RFM? Okay, here's what they need to do. I hope you're listening. Hope you're watching this on the live feed from the Strengthening Church Members Committee bunker in Salt Lake City, because I know they're watching. And hi, Brother Dykes, by the way. Um, no, here's, I, don't, I know you're talking about be stronger, right? But the church has painted itself into this impossible corner, but it's the corner they painted themselves into, which is continuing to pretend to prophetic abilities that Joseph Smith claimed when they've got nothing. And so they continue to pretend they've seen Jesus and they continue to pr uh, publish uh, manuals with stories. Wait, aren't they telling people now they haven't seen Jesus? No, not quite, not quite. The most recent statement on that was by Elder Oaks, uh, 2015 Boise Rescue, where he goes out there, obviously in response to Denver Snuffer's popularity, right? Everything that he and um, uh, the guy from the Church Historian's Office, who's now in the PR department, um, Richard... Shirley. Thank you. He goes out there too, right? So you got the apostle and the historian. They're double teaming him in Boise. And they go out there and they do this thing. It's very, very obviously about um, Denver Snuffer. And, of course, later on when he's asked if it's about Denver Snuffer, he says, oh, no, that had nothing to do with Denver Snuffer. Would you quit lying? Okay? Everybody knows that's a lie. And that's a small lie compared to the lies that they tell. It's okay to tell the truth as to why you're going out there to give a presentation that's sole purpose is to try and dissuade people from following after Denver Snuffer to say, these are the true prophets, our prophets are the true prophets, and here's all the reason that they're the true prophets, and you shouldn't follow you know, false prophets, and the scriptures talk about false prophets, but we're not here to talk about Denver Snuffer. No, this is just, uh, that's just a coincidence. 
Yeah, quit it. Just stop it. That's what the church needs to do is to quit lying. This church is so embedded in a culture of secrecy and lying and deception that it has all sorts of tentacles, and some of them are very ugly. Um, first off, they've never seen Jesus. None of those guys have ever seen Jesus, but they still want to. By the way, the reason they got there is because Elder Oaks is talking about the, the apostolic witness, right? Section 107, I think it is, special witnesses of Jesus Christ. And he says, but we have grown up, and I know this is a shared history we have. We know that they are special witnesses of Jesus Christ, right? And we read the stories, and we read the publications, and we read all the insinuations and the innuendos, and I did a special episode about that called Have LDS Apostles Seen Jesus Christ, at which I end. I start saying, you know, I started believing, and now pretty sure they haven't. And I go through exactly why it is. They want us to believe that. They say things in order to lead us to believe it. But Elder Oaks then says, you know, really the scripture says, it says we are special witnesses of the name of Jesus. And he's actually right. That is what the scripture says. In spite of the fact that they've had all these articles about how they're special witnesses of Christ and they skip the name. We are special witnesses of the name of Jesus Christ, which means we are witnesses of his priesthood and his plan of salvation and that is what it means to be a special witness of jesus christ of course what they're fighting against is the fact that here's you got um denver snuffer who says hey i've seen jesus i've seen jesus i've seen him more than once he showed me a lot of stuff i wrote it down it's cool you should read it we are that does not mean that we have seen jesus but it also doesn't mean that we haven't seen Jesus. And, you know, in an age like this, here comes the bullshit. In an age like this, a technological age, when anything that I say or my fellow apples say, I, this is not a very good elder. This is your you get general the authority voice. It's sort of. I don't do it as good <laughs> as the Infants on Thrones guys. Authority voice. I can do it better if I, if I can hear him a little bit first, like getting a key on a piano before I start singing. Uh, anything that, uh, that, uh, that's a little better for Elder Oaks. Um, uh, sort of kind of like Richard Nixon. Uh, I am not an apostle. No, I, and, uh, anything that we say can be taken out of context and, uh, flashed around the world in a matter of seconds. And so we have been instructed that we should keep our most spiritual experiences, uh, sacred and private. Our most sacred spiritual experiences are to remain private. That is total, total bullshit. Because what he has just said is, number one, I've got sacred experience. He hasn't seen Jesus. Elder Oaks, I'm calling you out right now. You haven't seen Jesus, and you know it, and you just need to confess it because it's good for the soul for crying out loud. It would do you good. I'm not saying we have seen Jesus, but I'm also not saying I haven't seen Jesus. And in fact, I've got these very special spiritual experiences, which may or may not include having seen Jesus, but I have been instructed by the prophet of the living God that those special experiences, which may or may not include seeing Jesus, I'm not supposed to share with you because that would be like casting pearls before swine. He actually says the pearls before swine crap. He actually says it. So the implication is what they always do. I have seen Jesus, but I can't tell you about it. You're not worthy. And um, th that's how they perpetuate this myth. Another thing that was really funny is that one year before 2015, when you got the Boise uh, rescue, and Elder Oak's actually saying that, you have Tom Phillips showing up on Infants on Thrones to be interviewed. 
who was a guy who was a leader in England. He had had his second anointing. Wait, he came on my podcast first. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Stepped on the wrong toes with that one. Whoa. That was close. Sorry. But did he tell you? Okay. About the second anointing, right? Yes. He has a second anointing. <laughs> Jesus is going to show up. That's what we're led to believe. He's no different. Okay. When's Jesus showing up? Should be any second now. Can't understand what's keeping Jesus. He doesn't show up anytime during the second anointing, either in the temple or at home when the wife is performing part two of the second anointing. And he thinks, well, maybe, you know, Jesus is going to show up a little bit later. Maybe this is the way it works. They don't have a handbook on it. There's just this general expectation. And Jesus, you know, it's been a week. It's been two weeks. It's been a month. It's been a year. There's no Jesus. What the heck's going on? And he thinks, like any good Mormon would think, it's his fault. He is to blame. So he's in Salt Lake, or some general authority comes out to him, who's received the second anointing. He says, hey, I got a question for you. And the general authority says, what? He says, when's Jesus going to show up? And the general authority looks at him and says, now look, here's the deal. If anybody asks you if you have seen Jesus, here is what you tell them. You looked them in the eye and you said, I have been instructed not to share my most sacred experiences in public. The implication is obvious. You have sacred experiences, but you can't share them publicly. You've seen Jesus, but you can't talk about it. But the amazing thing to me that was so funny is that Tom Phillips says this publicly on your podcast before Thank you. on Thrones. Yeah. Thank you. On Mormon <laughs> Stories podcast, starring John DeLynn, um, a year before Elder Oaks says it in Boise. And I just go, bam, boy, did he hit that right. I think that Tom Phillips just got a huge boost of credibility because that's exactly what Elder Oaks said. The dodge that they are instructed to give to try and make people think they've seen Jesus when they haven't. Yeah. That's shameful. Yeah. That is shameful. They should not do that. This, they just need to be honest. Do you know the members would actually appreciate honesty from them? Hey, I know a lot of you have think we've seen Jesus, and frankly, we've done a lot to contribute <clears throat> to that. I'm just telling you, I haven't seen Jesus. I felt the spirit. I think Jesus is a real good guy. And, you know, I believe this church is true and go on, but just be honest, come honest with people. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to just say, I agree. And I disagree. I think they need to stop lying, but I don't think they, they need to tell the truth if their goal is to keep the church strong. And what I mean by that is yes, stop lying, but that would be like for them to tell people, Hey, everyone in the whole world, mm -hmm. Hey, all Mormons at general conference, I know that you all think we have a prophetic mantle and that we're special witnesses of Christ, but we've never seen him. That's not that, that's not in their best interests because that's like the wizard sort of like pulling back the curtain and saying, hey, everybody, see that wizard up there? You all think he's amazing, but it's just me. Mm -hmm. And how is that going to help them? So you you, I think you were right, and then you kind of strayed a little bit. Here's RFM. the deal. Nobody wants a wizard. Everybody just wants I a person. Just, I think... <laughs> I think everybody wants a wizard except for super sort of like intellectual or awakened or enlightened or, you know, progressive sort of religious folk. But other than that, the unwashed masses, they want, they desperately want a wizard. It's the guy in elders quorum 
when I was given my liberal lessons like you, raised his hand and said, I just want someone to tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear about blacks in the priesthood or polygamy. Can you just, my life sucks. Can you just tell me what to do? I don't think you want a wizard. I don't think our listeners want wizards. But I think most Mormons want a wizard. I think most Americans want a wizard. I think most humans want a wizard. And that's why religion is still enshrouding 80% of the lives of the people on this planet. How can you say people don't want a wizard? Well, how can you explain the the pervasiveness of, of religious devotion in the world. I think that what I mean by this is, and let me, let me uh, try and get this a little bit more narrowly focused. Okay. Maybe you're right. Maybe people want a wizard. The church presents itself as the wizards, the guys in the know, the ones with the direct pipeline to God, but more and more people are seeing quicker and quicker and more broadly that these guys have nothing special, that they are not wizards, that the curtain has actually already been removed or is in the process of being removed for many people. Uh, and so here's the problem is the, the fallout, the fallout from proclaiming you're the wizard and then everybody finding out you got no clothes on. I just mix metaphors, of course, with emperors and wizards. But yeah, then they find it out. And that was part of the problem. That was part of the problem for me. This presentation that Mormonism gives, which may have attracted, I know it attracted it to me in the first, me to it in the first place, right? Without which I probably wouldn't have joined. But then I find out that it was all a big show. It was all a big sham. And I felt used. Yeah. I felt taken. Yeah. I felt uh, really bad about it. Yep. Yeah. And I felt like, well, this is not something I want to be a part of anymore. Yeah. So they, they create enemies like us, like, like Sam Young, like Bill Real, like you. Those of us, we're the most dangerous ones who took it really seriously um, and were willing to literally live and die for the church. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as we found out that it wasn't what it claimed to be and that we had been probably intentionally deceived and misled, then we become... I don't want to say the church's worst nightmare, but I mean, mm-hmm. the church is so rich and powerful and strong. We're like, we're, fl- we're flies and its tail is flapping us as we're flying around its rear end. I mean, literally, that's who we are. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that the church even thinks about the fly, you know, the church as a cow even thinks about the fly, that's all we are. But we are, we are pests to the church because we feel deceived. But, but uh, I'd say most people... Just want a wizard. <laughs> right. And like Lila Tuller, the daughter of Hartman Rector Jr., who uh, I and Bill Real interviewed a couple weeks ago, you know, she's left the church just in the last year. Yeah. And she, she pointed out, you know, you know, RFM and Bill Real, you know, basically the, the Mormon church doesn't even know that you exist. Yeah. And they don't know that John DeLynn exists. Obviously, yeah, more know right. that you exist, but you are off the radar. Yeah. For 95% of active Mormons, in the United States, they've never heard of Kate Kelly, John DeLynn, CES Letter, Jeremy Runnels. Yes. And that's what's so mind-boggling is we think in 14 years we've made this huge progress and we have literally barely scratched the surface. And most active, tithe-paying, orthodox, upper-middle-class Mormons have never even heard of yeah. any of us, including you, RFM, mm-hmm. including you. Even me. <laughs> even. And that hurts. Even. That hurts. Even. <laughs>